1: Hello and welcome to another Ask Cast Extra, as always with James from Gunnerblog. Vlog James. Good evening to you from a good afternoon here.
2: Right, yeah, I had to get my head around that. So where are you now, Andrew? Are you, you're in LA, right?
1: I'm in LA, in my hotel room. It's potentially a bit noisy. I can't tell. There seems to be a lot going on around here between stuff outside, and I think a few minutes ago they appeared to be hoovering the room upstairs, with, I'm guessing some kind of industrial suction device because I, I literally <laughs> couldn't hear myself think and I was a, a, a bit worried about it might come out on the podcast. But yes, I am in, I'm in LA.
2: Congratulations. I am in Broadstairs in Kent.
1: Okay. What brings yeah. you to such an august Broad- location?
2: Um, just the, the, uh, width of all the, staircases i guess that this place you know has its name for a reason no i'm on a sort of um a classic english seaside break and the weather forecast is rain for the entire week so i've timed it beautifully
1: perfectly yeah it's um it's warm here but not particularly sunny where we are um which is a bit of a shame but look it's very much a a first world complaint and first world problem uh so I, i won't go on about it um You've been busy, from what I can see. Have. I, I haven't been, I haven't been uh, on social media that much since I've been here. But I did notice your uh, rather extraordinary uh, performances at the Royal Albert Hall, of all places. I mean, that's basically like getting to to play at Wembley, right? <laughs> yeah,
2: I guess so. In sort of classical music terms, yeah, it was mad. I did uh, so horrible histories did a special. Um, performance at the BBC proms, which are like a series of concerts, uh, held annually every summer. And it's a huge, extraordinary venue, uh, Royal Abbott Hall. It's like 5,000 plus people. Last time I went there, it was to watch Return of the Jedi played with like an orchestra playing the score along. It was very wow. cool. Um, and then somehow they ended up letting me, uh, go on that stage and, act and sing so it was very 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 cool particularly because we were doing it in conjunction with the english national opera (ENO) and and their orchestra and their choir and um i'm sure you'll been inundated with people coming up to you and saying oh thanks for doing the podcast while you're in the states but i didn't necessarily expect to get that um at the royal albert hall but i had a guy come out of the orchestra who's a big fan he's a bassoon player i had someone um come out of the chorus singer's who said, "Oh, my son loves your show, and will you say hi to him?" So, it you know, it was very cool and a weird colliding of worlds. I'm sure uh, you've experienced an awful lot of that in your time in the states, uh, no doubt.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love the fact that there's a professional bassoon player out there who's a big listener to to the Arsecast. Uh, it's mad, eh? Arsecast Extra. Yeah, it is. And yeah, there was loads of that in in New York. We were here on uh, Friday night. We did. Um, Went to the event on uh, in Union Square that Arsenal NYC put on. I mean, absolutely packed and amazing to see so many Arsenal fans in, in the city um, uh, and meet so many people as well, and just have a have a chat, a brief chat, because there were just so many people. You're getting pulled from pillar to post in a way, but in in a good way. You know, because it's always a always a pleasure to meet people, and uh, even last night, um, Tim Stillman got in. I'm here with with Elliot as well. Elliot and I travelled down from New York yesterday. We got here. Tim got in. Tim posted uh, a picture. We were having a drink outside. Tim posted a picture, and you know what Arsenal Twitter is like, right? You know, you sure. could sort of say like, "Where is, um, you know, where is this?" And you could post a grainy, pixelated picture of, I don't know, Kylian Mbappe um, on his way to the Arsenal training ground. Right? You know, Arsenal Twitter can CSI the shit out of anything; they will find it. Um, two different people came on and said, "Oh, I saw the picture, and I was like, that's just around the corner for me." And they came down to say hello. So that was No cool. way.
2: <laughs> yeah. yeah. I suppose they'd probably cool. already tracked the flight. If they're Arsenal fans on Twitter, they'd tracked you on Elliot's plane from New York <laughs> to LA. So they were well aware of your your whereabouts. Um, that's dedication. I like it.
1: Yeah, it's good. It's good. And then, of course, we went to the game on, on Saturday at the MetLife Stadium. Um,
2: yeah. How was that experience?
1: It was a bit weird mm. in that... I was in the press box, and I don't know if you've encountered a, a press box at a big NFL stadium before.
2: I'd guess behind perspex or glass, maybe.
1: Correct. Yeah, it was like that yeah. when we were in Charlotte as well in 2019. The uh, the press box in the in the stadium in Charlotte. I can't remember the name of the the, the team uh, that play there, but it is a, an enormous stadium, and you are basically behind glass. So you can see the crowd and you can hear the very loud roars of the crowd, but you don't get any sense of the atmosphere. You don't get any sense of, um, you know, the, the, the interactions on the pitch and stuff like that. So you're essentially watching a game in silence, you know, which is kind of weird. You know the way you say you'd, you'd love to watch a game without the commentary, but you'd still want the crowd noise. You wouldn't want to watch it with the sound turned all the way down. So it was a little bit like that. Um, and I don't know if that had an impact on how I viewed the game versus some other people. I don't, I don't really know. Um, mm.
2: I've only had that experience last summer when I went out on the US tour, and it's my first time working in a stadium there. And I have to say, it did make me feel very detached um, from the events. Maybe if you are sort of there in a purely kind of analytical sense, maybe there is a kind of. Um, mm. Uh, you know, maybe there is a benefit to that, but I think the atmosphere is such a part of soccer and and football. You know, it it seems a shame to be sort of literally removed from it by uh, a barrier. Um, I didn't particularly enjoy it myself.
1: No, it's not great. I mean, the most noise that was made in the press box was when the, I'm sure you've seen the video of the the fight. Have you? Uh, Yeah, I haven't actually. I haven't, Andrew. Oh, so at probably about halfway through the second half, there were like, I was watching the game, and then I heard a big swathe of the press box go, ooh. And there's, oh. And I was like, "What? what's happening here? Because I'm not seeing anything on the pitch that reflects those noises. And they had actually caught sight of these fans swinging punches at each other and all kinds of stuff. And... I mean, yeah um that carried on for about a couple of minutes i think that these guys were were throwing haymakers and everything else i mean it's absolutely ludicrous i don't know what they were i don't know what they were at in the pre-season friendly uh and it did appear to be maybe uh, arsenal fans fighting other arsenal fans or i don't know exactly what it was
2: certainly people in uh, yeah i don't know i mean i'm watching it now um Lord only knows what happened there, but yeah, not not particularly pleasant scenes, and no. not and, and quite strange to see that at pre season friendly.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't think I would be um, keen to get involved in that kind of thing. And uh, you know, the the police here are fairly serious, right? So <laughs> you wouldn't want to yeah. you wouldn't want to be uh, bringing yourself to their attention. There was a guy in blue who basically did what the uh, you know the guy that kicked Aaron Ramsdale he sort of slunk yeah. off into the crowd and then sat down not realizing all the time that there was a camera on him the whole the whole way this guy went around down the bottom of an aisle went up the stairs and then i think he was intercepted by a couple of a uh, couple of stewards who didn't seem that keen on breaking up the fight i mean i suppose you know these big lumps of guys are throwing themselves around uh, you don't want to get involved there either. But then he went into the seats and I think he sort of sat down or tried to lie down to, to hide. I don't know if he got caught in the end. But um, yeah, it was um, that was what got the press box going more than the actual game itself. And I, I don't know if that's just the fact that it was unusual or if it's a consequence of the fact that when you're watching a game from within the confines of, of, of that, from behind Perspects, it's hard to really connect with it you know
2: yeah what about before the game and around the stadium uh, was there a good atmosphere there and did you get to be part of that
1: at all uh no not really because it took ages to get there in a we got a like a taxi and it took a long time to get there and we had to sort of go around and uh, try and get to the to the uh, press entrance to pick up the credentials and things like that. And we'd walked three quarters of the way around the stadium because of where we were dropped off and we had to sort of walk around and we got to a certain point and they said, no, 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 no. You've got to walk all the way back around the other side until a very nice lady helped us and allowed us to get through and and get there in time. But, you know, there was the, the tailgate thing, people in the car parks Mm. uh, grilling burgers and sandwiches and kicking footballs around. But, Really didn't get a, a chance to experience any of the the pregame stuff there, and postgame it was again another bit of a not a shit show, but it's a, it's quite a difficult place to get to and get out of because of all the wow. traffic. It's eighty five thousand people, and it's sort of out in Jersey somewhere, and there is a train, but that train takes you to another train station where you can get a train back into uh, into New York or wherever wherever you're going. But it was, yeah it was, a, yeah, it was a strange sort of experience. But I, I hope a good experience for the people who actually went to the game and were actually in the stadium and in the stands and, and soaking up the atmosphere and, and getting to see the team perhaps for, for the first time. It, it wasn't a great game. Um, I don't know how much of it you saw. Did you see much at all?
2: I watched the um, Arsenal YouTube channel highlights package, which strangely skipped over this fight. Um, sounds like that may have been, uh, <laughs> certainly one of the more dramatic moments. Um, but I, I it happens kind of during the middle of the night here. And as you say, I was yeah. working quite intensively last week on a show. So I, I thought I can't quite brave staying up all night and then going into rehearsals. But yeah, I watched the highlights and I saw, I kind of soaked it up through social media, really. I saw people's reactions and assessments and I mean, I guess it was a chance to have a look at you Know another look at some of the new players, but yeah, not as successful as our outing against the MLS All Stars, that's for sure.
1: Yeah, so I mean, he did start with a midfield of Rice, Havertz, and, and Odegaard, mm-hmm. which I guess is understandable. Um, a, a chance for him to have a look at it. And he was, um, he was in the press conference afterwards, he was asked about, uh, I think it was Kaya who asked him about. Uh, those guys starting together and how effective he thought it was and and all the rest of it um he said look they, they're, they'll be much better after 55 games and they know each other and all the rest which is I think true but you don't really have 55 games do you you've got like maybe another two games uh before it gets serious so um where, where do you stand on the, this is just preseason and we shouldn't pay too much attention to the performance. It's a fitness exercise. You know, there is obviously a benefit to, to winning a game like this because you, you can create a little bit of momentum, whether you can take it into the season or not is another thing. But also I suppose there is a benefit, if you want to call it that in things not working because it does highlight perhaps what you need to do on the training ground and all the rest.
2: Yeah, I think that it's it's impossible really to talk about it without considering last summer um, and the fact that Arsenal had quite a strong pre-season and carried that into the competitive campaign. Um, I was looking back actually at some of the teams we picked, the results we got, uh, and it was the third friendly of our US tour where we really clicked. I think we played... Everton and DC United potentially or something like that. Uh, and they were actually quite ragtag teams at that point in time. The second friendly of the tour, I think the back four was something like Cedric uh, holding Pablo Marie and Nuno Tavares. It was something as mm. you know makeshift as that. But on, in the final game, we played Chelsea and we beat them four nil and Arteta played what sort of consequently became the team. You know, Zinchenko had arrived by that point from Man City at left back. Ben White played at right back. Um, It was the first 11 that we saw uh, plenty of times last season. Saliba alongside Gabriel, Shaka in the number eight role, Jesus up front. They were all there and it all clicked. And from that point on, we were on a roll. We played it again against Sevilla in the Emirates Cup and absolutely smashed them. Um, And that team, took all that momentum into the season. So I do think it can be a really positive um, period, one that can really set you up well, start the ball rolling and, you know, show signs of a team clicking into life. I think what's tricky maybe this time round is I think there is just quite a lot of adjustment to make. I mean, you spoke about the midfield three. That is a significant evolution and one that all right, listen, maybe it can't take 55 games, but I don't think it's unreasonable to suggest it's going to take some games. The chances of that just working from the off, as Mikel Arteta has envisaged, seem quite slim. There seems to be an inevitable sort of teething process we're going to have to go through. And hopefully we can pick up the results along the way. But it's no surprise to me that there were some signs of uh, a slight lack of cohesion because...
1: Yeah. It's all new. Yeah, quite a bit of it is new. And I think um, I think there were some things that were noticeable in that, that Martin Odegaard played a bit deeper and Havertz mm-hmm. led the press in the way that, that Odegaard did it. And I don't know if that's what Mikel Arteta is planning for the season ahead or whether that's just something he wanted to have a look at, you know? And where better to take a look at something than in a, a preseason friendly uh, against uh, Premier League opposition... I mean, it has to be something that they factored into when they've made their plans for this summer and they thought about how this team is going to develop and evolve and all that kind of stuff, that if you do basically strip out two-thirds of your midfield and put in uh, two-thirds of it that's new, that there are potentially teething troubles or or, uh, they're going to take some time to to work together. But you've also got to balance that with the knowledge that in the Premier League, When you're up against a a team like Manchester City, as we've said, the margin for error, whether it's at the start of the season, midway through the season, or at the end of the season, every single point you drop feels seismic. So how do you think those conversations have gone, or is it a case that, that Arteta is confident that with the time he's got left, he's still got the game on Wednesday here against Barcelona, there's a game against Monaco next week, and then there's the Community Shield before the Real business kicks in, do you think he's confident that he can, if this is what his actual plan is, that he can make that work?
2: Yeah, I think he's got a little bit more wiggle room this summer. I think we might have a friendly or two more, which, you know, again, gives him slightly more time to get things together. Um, And as I say, it wasn't really until the end of the tour where Arsenal really clicks into gear and there's still time for that to happen. Hopefully that Barcelona game isn't in any doubt. Has there been any update on the uh, illness that had uh, plagued Barcelona. Arsenal seem confident they'll be fine to play that one, right?
1: Yeah, that is the line. Anyway, that, that the two clubs have been in contact and they are confident that this game will will go ahead. Um, right. And it'll be another really big test, won't it? It'll be a big test for not just the the midfield. You know, when you think about the players that Barcelona have and who they could put out in midfield, it will be really challenging for whichever trio he picks. If it's Rice, Havertz, Sodegaard again, which I think it probably should be if that's, you know, a big part of his thinking. The more they play together, the more easily these things will, will come together and they can make the adjustments that, that, uh, that will make it work, you know, because Rice is different from Partey. Havertz is different from Xhaka. Odegaard, we know what he can do. So it's about, I suppose, finding the blend. And perhaps that's why he, he was trying to do it a little bit differently with Havertz pressing the other day.
2: Yeah I I think it is going to take a bit of time. I mean, I said this on YouTube the other day, but if if all Mikel Arteta and Arsenal were thinking about was how do we hit the ground running and compete with Man City in this season to come, I think I think you'd probably insist on keeping Granit Xhaka and you probably start the season playing the same midfield that you ended last season with and slowly bed new players in but I, th- I think Arteta and particularly Edu in his role they have to think bigger than that they have to think yes this is about being hugely competitive next season and pushing City even harder but it's also about how do we sustain that over two years three years four years mm. and some of the changes we're seeing are about getting younger and replacing players who, who are in their late 20s early 30s um, so I think there's a kind of there's a long-term motivation for these changes, but there's also a short-term pressure to deliver results. And balancing those two things is the challenge for every football manager, for every football club. Um, I think he, he must have faith, but it's quite nice. You know, Thomas Partey is still in the squad. From the comments Miklarteta made the other day, mm. it sounds like he's going to be in the squad for the foreseeable future. I guess that does offer him... A degree of comfort right it's it's if a party stays it means he can revert to some things that have worked in the past uh, and doesn't have to completely reinvent the wheel as it were you know from the very get-go if he starts the season and this isn't showing signs of clicking immediately he can kind of put the brakes on a bit on the on the evolution and say look we'll stick party in there and maybe put rice in the roll. and you know that might be a more, um, how can I put it, a more steady evolution rather than a dramatic revolution of the midfield.
1: Yeah, I think that's fair. I think that's fair, and I think you know, on a purely footballing basis, there's no, uh, there's no question that an Arsenal squad with Thomas Partey in it is is uh, is a strong one or is a stronger mm-hmm. one than one without him. Regardless, I think of who you get in as a replacement because when you've spent the amount of money that we've spent, I don't think you're necessarily going to be going out and buying another finished article player. I think you're going to have to perhaps adjust and and bring in somebody who might develop into that role. So, yeah, it does give him a bit of a safety net in that regard. Elliot was saying he wouldn't be surprised if Partey started the season. Uh, I don't quite know whether that would be at the expense of Declan Rice I can't imagine that because you know the 100 million pound player is going to is going to need to play um but where exactly he might play if party uh, gets in the team will be will be quite interesting um
2: yeah it strikes me that Havertz maybe has the the biggest adaptation to undergo in terms of what he's going to be asked to do next season as opposed to what he was asked to do last season um and that might be the one that takes a little more time. I found it fascinating. Martin Odegaard gave an interview right at the start of the tour. I think it maybe was like a round table thing with a number of journalists. And he spoke about the new signings coming in. And one of the things he mentioned was, you know, that it can take a little bit of time to understand the game model at Arsenal because Arteta's degree of instruction, his tactical plan is so specific. Um, that the players literally take time to sort of learn the ropes, to learn
1: the, mm. the
2: way it works, the patterns of play. Um, and I think the speed uh, in which they can kind of acclimatise to that is going to be critical. I mean, I always pick Leo Trossard out as someone who seemed to almost intuitively understand what it was Mikel Arteta wanted from him. But for some players, let's say Gabriel Martinelli, it takes more time. Granted, he was very young, but... It is interesting the speed at which uh, the intelligence the players are going to have to show in order to um, get to grips with what it is Arteta specifically wants from them. That That's the challenge for these new boys.
1: I think that's true. And I think the, the other thing on that is the fact that the guys who were there last season understand and now they're learning variation, perhaps. They're learning some slightly yeah. different tactical things and... and Arteta spoke to me about having different ways of playing against the opposition. He doesn't want to be predictable. He said, we have to be unpredictable. Whereas these guys are having to come in and learn, you know, plan A, plan B, plan C, you know, in very basic terms. That's not it. But you know what I mean? They're having to learn all of it. Whereas the other guys are sort of making incremental steps in terms of what they've got to learn. So it becomes easier for them.
2: Yeah, you're right. They've got a head start and some of these other guys are playing catch up. So whether they can catch up in time for Nottingham Forest on the opening day, we'll see. I mean, I wanted to ask, Jurian Timber played at, at right back, I think I'm right in saying. Believe it or not, the right back didn't make a great deal of impression on the four-minute highlight package I watched. But how did he get on?
1: Uh, he was interesting. Uh, I don't think anybody was particularly good on the day, but he certainly popped up in areas as he did in the MLS All-Star game um, where you didn't necessarily expect a, a right-back to be. What was interesting was Takahiro Tomiyasu starting at left-back yeah. um, and maybe not inverting quite as much as you would expect from him because he's played that position before and there was maybe a little more balance on, on the other side where... Mm. Timber came inside and, and Asu stayed. And then Tierney came on at halftime, of course, and played as a very traditional left-back. He didn't really come into midfield at all. I think we brought... Maybe Timber started the second half. I think he did anyway. I think there was only right. one change at halftime, um, and I can't remember what that was. I think it was Tierney for Tomiyasu, in fact. That was the only change at halftime. Uh, and he made more changes then as as the game went on, but it was it's sort of hard again for me to make an assessment of of him uh, beyond like playing in a team that didn't really click on the day on a pitch that wasn't brilliant. Where, in fairness to Arsenal, we did have a couple of chances early on. I think Martinelli had a double chance which was saved, and then United both of United's goals. I, I'm absolutely sure the arsenal players involved will feel like they should have done better you know ramsdale on the save and gabriel with with a miskick uh, which let mm. sancho go through um so i, I yeah I, individual I, errors you know yeah uh, on those ones yeah um i mean w- who did stand out for me a little bit when he came on was emile smith rowe uh, he came on and played as a sort of left eight which was interesting and yeah we had
2: a, we had somebody who, who got in touch actually about that i'll just seeing as you've mentioned it um
0: who was it
2: yes Alexander muster on Twitter said hey guys should we be encouraged by Smith rowes performance against United he looked very determined fit and wanted to make things happen was that your takeaway as well
1: yeah I mean like I said it wasn't a great day for anybody really but he did look he did look sharp he looked fit you know what he looked like he looked like a guy who spent uh most of the summer playing competitive football, whereas the rest of them obviously haven't been. And I think that that little bit of edge showed, but you know, I was pleased to see it. I was pleased to see him not just sort of come on in a game like this and jog around. I think he knows he has something to prove. And I think he wants to do that. Um, You know, maybe I'm reading too much into a 15, 20 minute cameo or whatever it might be, but You know, you could easily have looked at that and said, yeah, he's just kind of going through the motions here. But he wasn't. He was sharp and he was alert and and played some good passes. And um, it was probably the most encouraging thing about that game for me. That and William Saliba, who was just, I don't know what to say about that guy. He's just unbelievable. Bit of a (laughs) Rolls Royce of a player. Um, Makes everything just look uh, so simple and so easy. But. There wasn't a great deal to take away from uh, from the game in, in positive terms from Arsenal. Uh, United played quite long, and mm-hmm. I think that was deliberate because mm-hmm. we have had some issues with teams who, who play long uh, I think we did towards the end of last season a little bit as well. And I think that was part of their, part of their plan. And, you know, we got exposed again, individual mistakes. I don't think even the Ramsdale one was a mistake per se. The ball just really dipped down in front of him, um, from the Fernandez shot. Like I think he should have done better and probably saved it, but it wasn't like a, a huge error. Whereas the Gabriel one, uh, absolutely was. And then there was a penalty shootout at the end. Um, yeah, I did really not
2: understand that. Is that, was that just a, uh, is that a function of whatever competition this friendly is supposedly taking place in?
1: It could be, it could be. I'm sure there is a rule book somewhere. It felt to me very much like, well, we've got them here. Let's give them a little extra entertainment, perhaps, you know, in the, in the uh, effort to avoid people paying big money, f- you know, for a game of football in the States. And it turns out to be a nil nil, at least you get some, you get some goals in the end. I, I, I suspect that's probably what it is. It was just like entertainment at the end. Uh, some good penalties from Arsenal, but there was um, one bad one from from Fabio Vieira, which went over the bar. Um, which I, you know, I think it's it's meaningless really uh, when it comes right down to it. But it also feels like one that he could have done with scoring. At the same time, you know, it was a good meaningless penalty kick. In a in a pre-season friendly, he blasted it over the bar and you could see the Arsenal players on halfway. They were trying to sort of encourage him and give him a clap, but he looked quite downtrodden about it. And I do wonder if, you know, for his own confidence, it would have been good if that had gone in.
2: Yeah, I mean, we can say it's a pre-season friendly as much as we like, but as you pointed out, there's 80,000 people in that stadium. There's many thousands more uh, watching around the world and a lot of eyes are on Fabio Vieira because he came here with a a big price tag and a strong reputation. And as yet he's underwhelmed slightly. So I think um, it could have been a real boost to him to put that away and, you know, be part of a successful shootout instead it's gone the other way. You know, he's a player who needs moments like that to kind of ignite his Arsenal career. Mm. Um, And this is an important pre-season period for him because it's something he didn't have last season. So uh, any part he plays could be beneficial, but yeah, it's a shame. He's he's one of the players who you feel like uh, you, you, he could have really done with that going in for his confidence, you know?
1: Yeah. And for people's faith in him or otherwise. Like, perception, you know, yeah. 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 The perception of him among the, the, the fan base, I think, is a little tarnished for understandable reasons it's a question now of whether Mikel Arteta can get more out of him next season and and where exactly he might play as and when he is deployed or picked to to play um but like i said he he just looked a bit like oh god <laughs> i didn't need that today um so yeah we'll see what happens i mean there was i'm trying to think was there anything else interesting Tierney did a bit of a like after immediately after the game when the when the players were sort of clapping the fans and Arteta had come on the pitch, he was taken to one side by one of the fitness coaches and he had to do a sort of half sprint down to the bottom of the pitch for some reason that I can't quite figure out. I guess they were maybe testing something, seeing how he felt after his 45 minutes. Um Flo Balagoon didn't get on the pitch mm. in New York. <laughs> well, New Jersey, uh, but he, of course, was born in New York. And I- I'm curious to see whether or not he gets a bit of time on Wednesday night against Barcelona because Eddie played on Saturday against United and look nobody was good nobody was particularly good but he had a he had a poor game I think and there's a a question in my mind now in that I think for the most part we know what we're going to get from Eddie Nketiah, what kind of performance we're going to get when he's having a good day, and what kind of performance we're going to get when he's not at that level. But we're not 100% sure yet about what Balogun can do in an Arsenal shirt in this team in that position. So on the basis of his performance against United, the door would be open to the other B striker, plan B striker, if you know what I mean. And I'm really curious to see if Balagoon does get minutes against Barcelona.
2: Yeah, I'm I'm curious to see as well. Um, I think uh, from what I heard today, it, it sounds like he... Oh, hang on. What am I going to say here? <laughs> what I don't time know. do you think this podcast will go out, Andrew?
1: It's going to go out um, almost oh, as soon as we're right? finished. Yeah, after half past ten.
2: Yeah. Okay, uh, in which case... So there's a 10.30pm news line coming out. So th- there's some reports this evening um, that Balogun didn't train with the main group today, um, that he was doing individual work with one of the Arsenal coaches. Um, so right now, his chances of featuring against Barcelona, I guess, aren't the best. I don't know why he was doing that individual work. I don't know if he's got an injury problem. Um you know, Zinchenko was doing individual work to bowl accounts and that was a fitness thing. Um, So it could be that he's carrying a fitness problem that might preclude his involvement. Mm. It could also be that Arsenal are in dialogue with Inter Milan or or somebody else about a deal because, you know, the the window is ticking on and Arsenal have got to get a few out the door and, he's one where I think there is at least a market for
1: him. I mean, there is probably a bigger discussion to be had, isn't there, about the centre-forward position? Mm. If he does go, and if you continue to get what you're getting from, from Eddie, I know that there's Jesus, I know that there's Trossard, I know that Havertz can play there, but I don't think... That's the plan really for him to play there. You could you could position him further forward in certain games. But I do wonder if when they're thinking about how they can really upgrade this squad next, or how they can add to this squad in a significant way, if Stryker isn't quite close to the top of the list.
2: Yeah, I agree with you actually. It would be for me. Um I don't get the sense that Arsenal see it as as much of a a pressing need. Um, But I do think there will be a signing in that position in the next hmm, 12 months. 12 months, maybe. Um, I just don't know how many dominoes have to fall for that to be the case. You know, my gut tells me that it would probably require Eddie and Balogun to go this summer Mm. for them to do it. But if I was in charge, if I was sat at Edu's desk, uh, it's definitely something I'd be looking at.
1: So with the game on Wednesday, just looking ahead very quickly to that before we take a break, is there anything in particular you're looking forward to seeing or looking to see from Arsenal beyond, let's say, just a, a better, more cohesive performance?
2: Yeah, that would be nice uh, for a start. I mean... I think for me, it is all about that midfield. I'm just fascinated to see. I've sort of earmarked this Barcelona game as the game where I think I want to sort of see what sort of shape we're in. Because we'll have played Nuremberg, we'll have played the All-Stars, we'll have played United. Um, most of the players are now with the squad, not too many injury concerns. For me, this is a bit of a litmus test. And even though it's a friendly, I, I don't really care about the score but I do want to see some signs of uh comfort, you know, on the pitch, of understanding, integration. And even if it means kind of taking one step back to go forward by, you know, bringing Partey back into the eleven, or, you know, just reverting to some of the stuff that has worked for Mikel Arteta previously, I think this is about the time that he needs to do that. So, yeah, all eyes on the midfield, really, because I think as much as we all accept that, it was the right time to part with Granite Xhaka. Mm. and I think as much of us, as much as we all you know recognize his limitations in that position, um, what whoever Arsenal brought in would require some adjustment and maybe a bit of kind of growing pains. And we might have seen a little bit of that against United, so it would be fascinating to see yeah, quite how quickly we can progress from there. Is there anything other than that that you're looking for?
1: No, I'd like to see that midfield trio again, just to just to give them a bit more time. Mm. Um,
2: if Balogun is involved, that would be really interesting.
1: I think um, it would. I mean, I don't see him starting. Gabriel Jesus didn't start against Manchester United. He came on second half and and you know did all right. Uh, but I think they'd obviously looked at the Barcelona game as as the one where he's going to start. If Balogun does get on, if he gets a, a run out in the second half against Barcelona, that would be that would be interesting too. It sort of feels like if he doesn't, like okay, could just be an injury, right? Could be just a small aggravating injury which is keeping him out. Yeah. But this this is where his chance was in a way to show that that he could contribute. Um so I will keep an eye on that and, and, and see what happens. And obviously what Mikel Arteta does with his fullbacks. He didn't start Kivior. Don't think Kivior even came on uh against United. So whether he goes back to Kivior, I think the decision to start Tommy Asu on Saturday was about getting minutes into his legs after the injury. Um so they mm-hmm. played him for forty five minutes and took him off. So maybe they might they might play him again. Mm-hmm. And um the Ben White Timber battle on the right hand side commences, uh, which is a really kind of fun and exciting one as well because of the way that they they both play. Like it was noticeable that White stayed wider and higher up the pitch than Timber did when he came on. Is he you know obviously plays as an overlapping fullback much more than we've seen from Timber in the last couple of days or the first couple of games that we saw him in. So uh, yeah, I'll keep an eye. Keep an eye on that, and fingers crossed, we get a better performance. And uh, uh, the result, you know, isn't a be all and end all, but a much better performance would be would be encouraging uh, ahead of the uh, the last couple of games of preseason. Um, Are you in the press so look, box again? No, not this time. Not this time. There you go. Uh, so hopefully, soak up a bit more of the atmosphere and get more of a flavour of the game uh, in the SoFi SoFi Stadium, of course, owned by Stan. So I presume Stan and Josh. Etc. will be there. Uh, you'd imagine see the so. Yeah, you'd imagine so. So, uh, yeah, got to put on a show in front of the big boss, you know. <laughs> <laughs>
2: exactly, yeah. I'll <laughs> be taking this one very seriously.
1: Yeah. All right. Well, look, we'll take a little break here. We're going to come back with your questions and more in part two right after this. Sign up for a one dollar a month trial period at Shopify.com slash arsblog. All lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash arsblog now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash arsblog Welcome back to the ArsCast Extra. This is part two of the show where we answer questions that you send to us on Twitter at Gunnerblog and at Arsblog. And also on the RSplug Discord chat server, which you get access to if you are an Arseplug member on Patreon. It's not called Twitter anymore, is it? No. It's called X or something, right? Stupid. It's the stupidest Mm. fucking thing I've ever heard.
2: X. It's called X because it was formerly a good website. (laughs)
1: Uh, (laughs) It no longer is. Oh, my God. It's ridiculous. Imagine, like, having a brand where, you know, the the, the actual name of a brand is... basically a verb that people use and identi- uh, identify with in a very serious way. And then you like just change it to X.com because you paid a million dollars for the domain name a few years ago. And you yeah. need to use it. Well, that. I
2: think, yeah. I think, uh, the particular individual involved has got kind of a history of, uh, acquiring other people's IP and sort of rebranding it. So it looks like his own, mm-hmm. um, It's a pretty transparent thing to do, but there you go.
1: There you go. Anyway, we will continue to refer to it as Twitter, I guess, uh, because, you know, send us your exes. Sounds really (laughs) fucking stupid, and I refuse uh, point blank to say it. Let me ask you a question um, from the Discord. And we had a, a couple of questions about this. Uh, Zach Tay said, do you think the way Manchester United approached the friendly will make Arsenal think twice about playing rivals in pre-season friendlies for the future? United were quite physical. There were a couple of bad challenges. I think one from the central, Martinez nearly sparked a bit of a, a scrap a foul on, on Saka. Um, so there's that. And then there was another one Uh, from Kari, who said, uh, it feels like most managers would rather pre-season was as low-key as possible in order to get the team ready without hiccups. But do you think having high-intensity games like the one against United can help the team get up to speed quicker, or do they do more harm than good?
2: Yeah, we've come a long way since, uh, you know, Arsene Wenger taking everyone seemingly on sort of an Alpine monastery retreat every summer. (laughs) Um, I think... You know, the motivation, well, one of the major motivations is obviously commercial, right? That's a big reason yeah. that these games are happening. Um, we all remember the proposals of the 39th game. Uh, there was a lot of opposition to that, but now we get fixtures which are effectively Premier League matches um, just sort of transplanted to uh, the other side of the Atlantic. Um It's a reality. It's a commercial reality. And I think that Mikel Arteta probably prefers it to playing a kind of minnow from the German fourth division. I think that he probably relishes that it's going to be competitive and a proper tune-up. And it is worth saying that Arsenal, alongside these games that we watch um, and that are broadcast around the world, they do play some lower key friendlies, you know, they play games behind closed doors at London Colney, or sometimes at the Emirates stadium, be it against Brentford's B team or, you know, whoever else that they drag down from, from the English lower divisions to, to play against them. And those are, I think a bit more um relaxed in terms of like the number of substitutions made and uh the, the attitude. So there is still a kind of two pronged approach to pre-season, but, I think Arteta is so demanding of his players that he probably would rather see them up against a Barcelona or United than a, a Biggleswade or whoever it might be. Um, I don't know how much merit he would find in battering someone 6-7-0 that's way below the standard of competition you're going to face in literally a fortnight or so's time.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I, I do un- understand that. And I think that's right. I just wonder if maybe... If you are tweaking things, does it allow you to um, not play the game as a training exercise per se, but sort of, uh, you know, to use it as precision for the way that you want to play, those routines and drills that you've done on the training ground? Can you execute them more easily against a team that is uh, of a lower standard? Um, But maybe you learn more from defeat. Maybe you learn more from uh, a side that knows you well, as well as you know them and and perhaps tries to exploit some of your weaknesses, as I think United did. Um, they got a little bit fortunate the other day. So I think it is probably more beneficial, as you say, than than playing Ticklington Rovers. But I think there's also a fear within the hearts of supporters that a cynicism maybe, a cynical fear that like, okay, here's a game in preseason. Can we kick one of their best players out of the game for a few weeks? I'm not necessarily sure that's the way that, that footballers think or other football clubs or football managers necessarily think. Not all of them anyway, but I think as fans, we worry about, you know, Lissandro Martinez fouling Bakayo Saka and Saka gets an injury for a few weeks. We are absolutely apoplectic with rage because we are convinced that he did that deliberately. Um, you know, to 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 hamper Arsenal or whatever it is, but if it was just a guy from, you know, a team that doesn't play in the same league, you probably don't jump to that conclusion.
2: Well, if we did play a team from a lower league and one of them went in two-footed on one of our players, we'd probably be saying, "Oh, this is what happens," you know, when you pl- come up against players of a lower technical level. Obviously, they're going to rough yeah. you up. Um. I think anyone who touches Bukayo Saka, we're basically furious with them and and, and rightfully so. Um, but I have to be honest and say, as a fan, I don't like us playing against Premier League teams I, in pre-season. I see that all year round. I've, I'm much more excited about the prospect of a friendly against Barcelona than I am yeah. of one against Manchester United, you know?
1: Yeah, for sure. Me too. Me too. I, I really don't like playing other... English clubs in in pre-season, but uh, like you say, it is a commercial reality and uh, there is probably sufficient, uh, what's the word? I can't remember the word, but there's probably enough for Mikel Arteta to take from it as a way to, to gauge his own team at this point of their pre-season preparations, you know, based on what he knows about us as a team, what he knows about Manchester United as a team, you know, that probably gives him reasonably handy markers for what he feels he needs to do.
2: Yeah, I mean, it does put a pretty interesting complexion on it when you consider that we actually play United in the Premier League in about five weeks' time. Right. I, I can't help but wonder, a manager who thinks as much as Mikel does about the game, you know, would it be anywhere in his mind to sort of not reveal his whole hand um, a month before you play a team in the Premier League. I don't know, mm, but it's, maybe. It, it becomes a consideration, doesn't it, when you're up against a side who you're going to face in just over a month.
1: Yeah, perhaps there was an element of that to it. Um, I'm not saying he, oh, you sent
2: them out to lose to Lull United. No, 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 I know, that I, know but that. I don't know. I mean, do you look at it as a training exercise? Do you say, well, let's try this against United if it works again? Uh, if it works, we'll use it again down the road. Do you say,
1: yeah,
2: well let's not play you know this player because I'm planning to use them in the Premier League, and I don't want United to be studying this video and analyzing us to death over the next however many weeks there's yeah. a lot to consider in our position there,
1: I think so, I think so. All right, your question uh,
2: okay, this is another game, another sort of point on. The atmosphere in general. Um, it's from Detroit Flash on the Discord. And they say, I had the pl- pleasure, in inverted commas, uh, of being at the game Saturday. I'm not panicked at all. It's an exhibition. My biggest issue is with the venue. The stadium blared music throughout the pre game, which meant any singing and chanting were drowned out. The stadium announcer clearly was looking at both team names for the first time, leading to some hilarious pronunciations and they called a yellow a caution card. Should the teams bring their own operations staff along to these tours to give the fans an authentic experience? My eight-year-old son was disappointed it wasn't like he hears on TV at the Emirates.
1: Hmm. I don't know. I mean, I didn't hear any of those hilarious uh, mispronunciations, so I can't really comment on that. I hope he called Harry Maguire Harry Magoo. That would be good. I think, I think you are at the behest of where you're you're holding the game because we happen to be talking to a guy in the press box who worked there, and it's his job to do a very specific thing in there when there are NFL games on, but he was then doing the same job for a game, of, a game of football, a game of soccer, so I just wonder if contractually you are obliged. To use the staff that are in situ, and um, I just don't know if you can reproduce the authenticity of an actual home game, a Premier League game, a game at the Emirates Stadium anywhere other than there. And I'm not sure you necessarily should either. Um, yeah, I do. I do get where where um, what was the name again? Detroit I can't Flash. Where Flash. Um, is coming from in, in that sense. But I just don't know if it is replicable because of the context, because of what's, uh, because of just the way that sport is slightly different in different countries or the way that it is uh, perceived in different countries is, you know, is always going to be different. You're always going to have that variation. Um So, I don't know if they're going to bring over like the Arsenal stadium announcer next time they're in the States or if they're in the Far East or if they're in Australia or wherever it might be. I, I just don't see that as, as something that's going to happen. Um,
2: There's only so many seats on that plane, ultimately. Um, yeah. And, and I think I think where I sort of agree with you, and I, I sort of feel bad saying this for our listeners and the fan state side, is that I'm not sure you can replicate the authentic Emirates Stadium, North London experience. And I sort of think that's probably quite important that you can't, and it's what makes the home games special.
1: It's the the element of, as much as you want to talk about the importance of pre-season, how you don't want to lose to Manchester United, all the rest of it, it is, at the end of the day, though, a result that doesn't go down in the history books in any mm. way. This is not a competitive fixture. It can be a competitive game, but I think when you're actually within a competition itself, there's an element of jeopardy to what's happening on the pitch. Because you know, we can sit here and we can say, well, we lost. We didn't play well. We made some mistakes. This is what we go and fix. This is how we improve on that. Um I was talking to a United... Uh, journalist afterwards very briefly, and he was was pretty confident uh, about, uh, you know, their chances for the new season, about how they've been playing so far in in preseason and all the rest of it. But at the end of the day, this isn't competition. This isn't a... a, There were no points to be gained for anything meaningful in this. So I think that does run through the very heart of a fixture like this, you know, and I, I, I... it's a, a brilliant thing for uh, fans of English teams when they come to the U S because for many of the people who go to these games, it's going to be the only chance they get to see the team live and in person because you know, it's hard enough for people who live in London to get tickets to go and see Arsenal right now. Um, so, you know, when you add in all the travel and the costs and all the rest of it, it's not easy for, for fans. So there is a, an importance to these fixtures in that sense, but they're not, they just lack the competitive edge, the proper element of competition that you need to have that authentic experience. So, uh, yeah, so there you go. You can kind of do it cosmetically,
2: but you can't fake the stakes ultimately.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's it. Um, Silent Fox One says, uh, goodly morning, gents. Why do you think our fan base is so quick to jump on the back of Havertz? It's a brand new position and a complex position in a complex system. I'm quite disappointed our fan base would think it would be an instant success.
2: I mean, I have to be honest and say that I've not hugely engaged with um, the kind of reaction online to to the game because, as I say, there aren't real stakes attached to it. Um, But I did see this tweet on Havertz from Steve uh at stevie steve steer on twitter <laughs> he said do you think Habert may become victim to the body language police a la urzel um and from the bits and pieces i have seen of him of, of have seen of him rather i find that plausible because he does sort of have that slightly languid gait, which you know i think when it's not working for him uh he can cut quite a frustrating figure on the field. Mm. So he's got that to consider. I think well the baggage of Chelsea, which is mm-hmm. significant and a burden that he has to bear. Um And the greatest burden of all, which is that he's replacing a player who was really, really good and really effective for us last season and who isn't there anymore. So I think, I think he's, I think, you know, someone asked us last week which of the new signings is under the most pressure. Mm. And I think it is Kai Havertz. Even though we spent £100 million on one of the other guys, I just think there's going to be a lot of focus on Havertz. And in some ways, that's why I say maybe he doesn't start the season. Maybe you do play Partey deep and play Rice as the kind of left eight, a little bit more withdrawn, a bit more like the job Shaka did last season, just to give him that time because. Yeah. You know, he, he's coming from a club where he had a really difficult period, and if we've invested in him at the scale that we have, it's because we believe he's he's going to contribute to us in the long term. So, I think they've got to manage this one, you know, in, in quite intelligently. Um, All right to to make sure his adaptation is as smooth as possible.
1: All right. Well, let me just follow on from that with a question from Healthy Salibak on the Discord. And when it comes to sort of managing new signings, new players, expectations, he says, Rice is our biggest signing in quite some time. We expect the world of him. Mikel often talks about protecting the players from overwhelming media attention and focus. Are Arsenal doing enough to let Rice slide in without crushing pressure? It seems like every single piece of Arsenal media content is focused on Rice doing something. Should we not back off a bit?
2: If Arsenal don't do it, you'll still have the rest of the media doing it. I mean, that is the biggest Premier League deal of the summer. Um, You know, Who knows what else will go on and if it will be superseded. But uh, there's going to be a lot of focus on any player you spend £100 million on. And Arsenal will be, I suppose, led by the fans, really. If the fans want to see Declan Rice on Instagram, they're going to get Declan Rice. And I don't really blame them in that respect for doing that. I did want to ask you a bit about him because it struck me in part one, we, you know, we spoke at some length about Havertz and Mm. and Timber, but, but how did Declan Rice fare? And, you know, what was he doing? The job that we expected, you know, at the base of the midfield. And was he quite, um, I, I heard from a few people that they were sort of surprised quite how withdrawn, quite how deep he was.
1: Yeah. I think he was playing very much within himself. I don't know if that's a question of, you know, managing his own physicality and his fitness and his readiness. He seemed to play in quite a conservative way. I mean, he did look for the ball in, in areas and didn't get it quite a few times. I noticed that in the first half in particular, there were moments where he was coming to to collect the ball and it didn't get to him. But yeah, it was a fairly safe performance, I think you would say, from from Declan Rice. He didn't progress the ball uh, a huge amount. He certainly didn't carry the ball in any significant way. And that might have been the way that Manchester United set up. But I think also it was just a player starting his first game for a new club, as we've said, in a system that has taken some of the players a bit of time to get used to.
2: Well, yeah. Uh, Thomas, I mean, the Thomas Partey is a, a great example, right? Exactly. We had a question which said exactly that. I'm just going to dig it out now. Um, Big Gabby's teeth. <laughs> the usernames are, are great uh, on Twitter. Said, Are we underestimating how quickly we should expect Declan Rice to adapt to what Arteta wants from his number six? It took Thomas Partey nearly a whole season. so So we should definitely keep him next year to allow Rice to settle. And sure, we have party fit for our biggest games. Um, it is a big adapt- adaptation. And again, it's not, it's not the exact role he was playing last year at West Ham. He was getting a lot further forward with West Ham, playing in a true kind of box to box fashion. He had another guy, Thomas Suchek, in there next to him most of the time. Um, and it's very specific what Rice will need to do at Arsenal. So, yeah, I think I think it is inevitable there'll be adaptation. I think it was probably unrealistic. You know, this isn't FIFA. It's not a case of just sort of buying players and, you know, suddenly they all click together on the pitch. I think it, w- it may take a bit of time. Um, but the reason we've made these changes because we think in, in the long term, hopefully in the not too long term, the medium term, it will make us substantially better. Um, yeah. But... But he's got a lot to get to grips with, Rice. I mean,
1: well, I, I think that's true. I, I I don't want to be dismissive in any way of David Moyes, but I would say that Mikel Arteta is perhaps a, a little more demanding as a coach in terms of what he expects from players tactically, right? Yeah. Uh, so I I do think that is something he's going to have to come to terms with. And well, I think also, he can. Rice was, go on.
2: He, West Ham was Rice's team. Like, the team was effectively completely built around him and in such a way that it granted him a certain degree of freedom. I'm not sure anyone in Mikel Arteta's team gets quite that degree of licence. I think even though there appears sort of freedom in movement and interchanging of positions, I think if you broke it down, you know, it's, it's sort of, I imagine that if you strip it all away, it's like the matrix, right? It's all numbers, it's all drills, it's all things that Arteta has sort of imprinted upon these players. And Declan Rice is going to be no exception to that. In fact, in his position at the base of the midfield, I think he's going to be probably loaded with as much as t- tactical instruction as any other player on the field, possibly more.
1: I agree. I agree. And just going back to the original question about the spotlight, I think when a transfer has been you know, in the offing for as long as that one was and when it happens, when you spend £100 million on a player, there is a an element of media profile both in-house and externally that is just going to happen naturally and like you said the fans wanted Declan Rice content that's what they wanted that's what they got and I also think in some ways it's it's potentially helpful in terms of him settling into the club and feeling part of things and feeling included and I know like doing a you know, a YouTube video with Saka and Frimi or whatever it might be, you know, that's not going to be the thing that that, that uh, gets his feet completely under the table at Arsenal. But it is just part of how you settle into a new squad, a new group of players. You feel comfortable. You feel like you can, uh, you know, you're really part of the squad and part of the team. Um I'm sure the 100 million pound transfer uh, you know does that too but I you know it doesn't stri- he doesn't strike me as the kind of guy who is going to be like oh you know I'm a bit in the spotlight here uh, I'm freaked out now and I'm going to go into my shell I don't really get that from Declan Rice
2: No he's no shrinking violet I mean this is a man who performed Ice Ice Baby um you know on national television so he, he did what yeah. <laughs> uh, did
1: you, did, sorry say that again
2: uh, did he yes um if you when? dig out it's on uh, a league of their own the sort oh, of, God, the sort of yeah. one um sports comedy vehicle he he um. did perform on that uh, rice rice baby was obviously the lyric um yeah. but I, I think I'd actually go on further and say I think it, Arsenal kind of a right to make noise about this transfer. I think it's a really significant transfer in the history of the club and one that's quite important to sort of reposition Arsenal and restate our degree of ambition, our capacity to attract players, our capacity to spend money. And I think it's normal and correct that you kind of leverage that um, to build the club identity and it would be very odd if we spent a hundred million pound on a player and sort of got embarrassed about it, you know?
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. That's true. That's true. Um, I think it's your question, is it?
2: very possibly. Um, well, I mean, let's, let's make Declan Rice and everyone else feel much better about his transfer fee by talking about another deal. 5-1 at San Siro said, afternoon chaps, what do you think of the £259 million bid for Mbappe from Saudi Arabia? Uh, And then as a follow-up question, he says, assuming he goes, would your feeling towards the European Super League change at all, given the massive amounts of money being involved in that competition could bring in, uh, and that it could offer protection for our top players like Saka, Martinelli, Saliba, etc.?
1: I don't really understand that part of the question. Like, I don't know what I guess what
2: he's suggesting is that uh, does the threat of the amount of money being spent on the Saudi Arabian League um, make you reconsider your attitude to the European Super League because it might offer some modicum of financial protection?
1: from the Saudi Arabian league. Yes. Yeah. No, no, I'm finding it difficult to draw a line between those two things, to be honest. Um, as for the the story, I mean, I've only seen it briefly on, on Twitter and maybe, you know, a bit more about it than I do. You know, there's been a bit of, I believe some shenanigans between PSG and Mbappe. Like they, I can't remember, uh, Exactly yeah, I mean, basically said. he
2: said that he's not going to sign a new contract. His contract yeah. expires in a year. Um And so the Saudi League have come up with this extraordinary offer where they'll pay this extortionate fee um, and sign him to a one-year contract that would enable him to still join Real Madrid as planned next summer.
1: It's I mean, kind I-
2: of crazy. I-
1: I mean, kind of. It's completely insane. It is completely <laughs> I, insane. Two hundred and fifty-nine million. Right. I, I'm
2: it sounds so ludicrous that I'm like, have I even got that right?
1: I think that. I, I, think, think, that's I, have, what, but- I think that's what I read. Yeah, I read the same thing, and it, it's just, I don't. I'm not surprised, but it's also just absurd that this. This is out there, and this—I don't know if it's going to happen. I don't. I don't think Kylian Mbappe is going to go to Saudi Arabia for a year. Do you?
2: Uh, well, they're offering to pay him something absolutely absurd, aren't they? Like like hundreds and hundreds of millions
1: for one year. Um, but what age is he? He's twenty four. Is yeah. he Kylian Mbappe? is twenty four.
2: I don't even know if he's as old as that, Kylian Mbappe. He is 24, correct?
1: Yeah. I mean, I know money talks and that's an outrageous amount of money. Fabrizio this is- uh,
2: Romano has reported, yeah, they would pay him 200 million euros for, for one season. Um, two hundred million, and euros. they believe that his income could get closer to seven hundred million euros a year with commercial arrangements and image rights.
1: I mean that so, that as that as well as two hundred million, basically tax free, right?
2: Yeah, I mean he could. He's getting close to uh, a billion. In I mean, I, I presume
1: <laughs> I presume PSG have said yes to this.
2: Believe it or not, PSG have shown that they may be open to this deal. Right, Um, that is a surprise, yeah. Because the belief is that Mbappe has an agreement with Real, you know, to go there in 12 months' time. Yeah. Uh, And for PSG, this presents an opportunity to recoup some money on a player who they otherwise
1: could well lose for nothing. Um, I mean, I have zero sympathy for PSG, obviously. You know, if this is not something they could have seen coming and didn't deal with, you know, that's their tough shit it this is a great solution for p s g if you want to call it a solution this would be amazing for them so i you know i genuinely hope it doesn't happen and I also think like there's there's enough money in the mbappe bank account already i think for him to i mean it's such i can see what the Saudi Arabian League is trying to do. And as I've said before, when the Premier League has been the biggest and richest football league in the world, when somebody else tries to uh, match that or, or, uh, you know, buy not credibility, but buy players who can increase the level, you know, why shouldn't they? But it is and would be at this point, a huge backward step in his playing career. To, yeah. to play in that league. And I just yeah. can't believe that a serious guy at this stage of his career would contemplate that. But I suppose maybe the other thing is what is the what is the threat from PSG if he doesn't sign? Are they going to play him? I mean, they, they couldn't just not play him, right?
2: Well, he's their best player. Um I mean, another so, interesting sort of wrinkle in it all is that, you know, there's a European championships, uh, in 2024. Um, would Mbappe warm up for that by playing in Saudi for a year? I, I really, I really don't know. Maybe I'm being naive. You tell me, am I being naive? I still feel for all the money that's sloshing around that, that the players, um, that are choosing to go to Saudi Arabia largely Like they're either like towards the end of their career or they're not right at the top of their game. I, you know, I I haven't seen a situation like a player who starts regularly for a top six Premier League club going to Saudi Arabia right now. So I, I, and until we are seeing that, like even if Mbappe goes, which I'm not convinced he will, but if he does, it's a very, very particular specific situation where, which as you say kind of provides a good solution to an awkward problem I still feel that there is a long way to go for the Saudi Arabian League in terms of you know landing that the very top echelon of talent and I do find it hard to foresee a young player at the top of the game who's playing in the Champions League and the Premier League making that jump right now I don't preclude yeah. it happening in you know, three, four, five years, but we I don't think we're in that place yet.
1: Yeah, no, I don't think so either. I mean, someone like Ruben Neves is an example of a player who, you know, in his prime years has decided to go. But I think the reason that he decided to go is is very obvious, like the huge (laughs) amount of money on offer. And he's just, you know, he's a guy who played for Wolves. You know, this isn't top, top talent. He's a good player. And obviously we were linked with him a bit, but I just can't, understand why he would go there I mean maybe money will obliterate all other aspects to this and he'll just say well I'll go I'll get all that money and then next year I'll go to Real Madrid and it will be one of those weird quirky things about a player's career that sometimes happen but I just I I can't really understand uh, why he would do it apart from the money but does he need the money I think he's on uh, something like 72 million euros a year at PSG as it is. I don't know. I'm just
2: just annoyed we can't sell more of our players to Saudi Arabia, to be honest.
1: I, I'm just, you know, uh, you can just take off to Saudi Arabia there. I'm just annoyed we can't sell any of our players. Uh, that is in general, true, yeah. Let's, let's get a few of those out. All right. Should that uh, a
2: decline. Um, I can imagine Edu making a phone call saying like, ah, you like a – a french speaking forward do. may I introduce a gentleman called nicolas pepe.
1: <laughs> <laughs> have you uh, met my good friend edouard in gitiya. um he he could do a job for you. uh let's just do a uh, one to finish here because we've we've got to get going it's quite late where you are. um hell Helcarax. hell, caracks, hell, car, uh, hell he's on the discord anyway. He said, "Last year, I asked you who'd be our second top scorer behind Jesus. Didn't work mm-hmm. out that way. Let's hear your top five scores prediction for the coming season." He says, "Personally, I feel like, yeah." He said, "Personally, I feel like Martinelli is going to have a monster year." So he's gone with Martinelli as our top goal scorer. Uh, I'm not giving you the rest of his, but let me have your uh, let me have your top five goal scorers for the season Oof. ahead in order. In order. I will go,
2: I think I agree with him, actually. I think I'll go Martinelli. Um. Then I'm going to go Saka. Then I'm going to go Jesus. Then I'm going to go Odegaard. And then I'm going to go Havertz.
1: Right. Well, I've gone with uh, Saka to be our top scorer.
2: Yeah, I, th- I thought long and hard about that. It was an option.
1: <laughs> I love that Hens, you course, long and hard about that. No, you didn't. It was about ten, three seconds. Okay, I thought hard. <laughs> uh, yeah, I've I've gone Saka first, then Jesus, then Martinelli. I feel like Jesus is going to have a season. I don't know why.
2: Okay, um, I like that.
1: Martinelli third. Odegaard, and then I've gone, I just put Dan Trossard.
2: I forgot he existed briefly, but yeah. Yeah, there you go. So I we'll think see. Saka's a good shout because of the penalties, to be honest with you. Um, mm. And also he's going to play 80 games. <laughs> so
1: <laughs> Yeah, he's going to play every minute of every game. Um, actually, there was a question from Louis Letty on the Discord as well. He said, do you suspect Arteta will change penalty kick duty for next season? Do you find it interesting that Odegaard was the first to step up during the penalty shootout. Um, and I didn't really find it that interesting because he's the captain and Saka had gone off at that stage. So I don't think we're going to see any change in, in the penalty taker. Took, uh, took I a decent penalty
2: though, um, yeah. Odegaard. I, I mean, I, you know, was. Jorginho scored a couple in this preseason, hasn't he? Um,
1: yeah, skippity-hoppity.
2: I mean, his record's very good, uh, you know. Mm. if he's, but, but will he be on the pitch enough? That's that's the question. That um, is it. I think Saka I think he'll want to take the next one, you know. Sure. Especially after the West Ham uh the West Ham miss. I think he'll want to put that right. He's shown that character before. I think he'll want to do it again.
1: I think so. I think so. All right. Well look, we had better leave it there. Um we will have a podcast for you on. Thursday, Uh, myself and Andrew Allen will uh, talk to you a little bit about what happened in the game against Barcelona, which is taking place Wednesday night. So because there's the eight hour difference uh, in time, it'll probably be evening time on Thursday uh, for a lot of you guys over in in the UK and Ireland when we have that. Uh, But we'll have a podcast for you on Thursday. We'll talk about the Barcelona game and all the rest. Um, For now though, we better leave it there, James. um, No plans to do... Radio City Music Hall or Sydney Opera House between now and the next Ars Cast Extra?
2: Uh, maybe next year. Maybe
1: next year. All right. Uh, all right, we'll leave it there. Thank you, folks. We'll catch you on the next one.
2: Bye-bye.